Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And uh, after our unexpected break last week, in which I had a number of family matters to attend to at the, the end of several hours of motorway driving there and back, which meant that unfortunately we couldn't have a program last week, I am very pleased this week to be able to say that we're, well, I'm going to do a pun here, we're back on the road, but uh, a different road, not a motorway, but another conversation. And this week I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program Gordon Newfeld, who joined us almost a year ago to talk about the Moonies, or more properly, the so-called Unification Church of the late Sun Myung Moon, and to share with us something of his experience of being involved in that organization. So just to refresh our memories, Gordon is a freelance writer currently living in Alplaus, New York. He is a master's graduate of the University of British Columbia in creative writing. And his main book, up to now at least, has been Heartbreak and Rage, Ten Years Under Sun Myung Moon, A Cult Survivor's Memoir. Although he now has yet another book called Cult Fiction, One Writer's Creative Journey Through an Extreme Religion, which will be guiding our conversation today. He has also published many book reviews and articles about his experience of once being deeply involved in this uh, unification church, indeed having spent a decade in that organization and rising through the ranks to the position of leader in training at the Unification Theological Seminary. So Gordon, thank you very much indeed for joining us again on The Mind Renewed. It's great to be speaking with you. Yes, thank you for inviting me again. I'm very pleased. Now, as I said, this new book of yours, which uh, I'm just going to mention the title again, Cult Fiction, One Writer's Creative Journey Through an Extreme Religion, is going to be guiding our conversation today. And I do thank you for sending it to me. I did enjoy it very much. Now, please correct me if I get this characterization of your book wrong, but let me say that it's an exploration. You are looking back at your creative writing uh, before, during, and after your involvement in this so-called unification church to see how you changed as a person over that time and how your creative work changed and to see how the very act of creative writing was itself a crucial well perhaps the crucial tool with which you broke free from that destructive extreme religion and as i say i did enjoy reading it and I'm, I'm going to be quite honest i didn't expect it to be quite as fascinating as it did in fact turn out to be it is very interesting you are very honest and it's, it's revealing you're very analytical and uh, it's a very entertaining book as well and so i did very much um, uh, appreciate it and i do recommend that people get a copy and read it so the first question i've really got to ask you gordon is have i described that well how would you put this uh, in your own words that's about right. The idea came to me that I had all these old stories and poems that I'd written years ago, and I thought maybe a sociologist or someone would like to look at these and see what conclusions they could draw about a person g going into a cult. I didn't immediately find any academic person who, who wanted to do the study, and I said, well, wait a minute, I could do it myself. And then uh, I began to assemble all the materials that I wrote before the Unification Church, and all the materials I wrote during the Unification Church. And then I had more than enough stuff from afterwards. I only put in a few samples of that sort of work. Yeah. So then I thought, well, this can show you this sort of the arc of development of a person going into and then coming out of a cult. And it might show something about how creativity and in particular writing can assist the process of coming out of a cult. Absolutely. And it does do that. It's not just a collection of your writing, is it? It is something that you analyze in these various ways and you draw many very valuable conclusions from. Now, this is going to be guiding us as we go through, but I really do think that we need to set the stage a little bit for this conversation. When you joined us last time, you described in some detail the history and the beliefs and the practices of the Unification Church. And of course, if people haven't heard that first interview, then I do suggest go back and listen to that because there's a lot of information in there. Obviously, we can't go over all of that now. But I do think it would be good to just go over a little of that again, just to sort of prepare us for this subject a little bit. So could you give us a very brief sketch of what the Unification Church is and of its founder, Sun Myung Moon? Oh, all right. Um <laughs> The Unification Church uh, was formally founded in 1954 in Korea, and the name of the organization officially is the uh, Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity. And it was, for many years, an obscure sect in South Korea, beginning in Pusan and then, you know, later expanding. And it's 
chief claim is that this one man, Sun Myung Moon, who passed away two years ago, is the Messiah. They have a doctrine sort of based on Christianity, but expanding on it and modifying it in many ways, which purports to show that God has attempted throughout history to bring all mankind back to the Garden of Eden, and that the first big attempt was with Jesus Christ, but it failed because Jesus Christ couldn't gather enough believers. And so instead of having this, the world become perfected, Jesus Christ had to be crucified in order to sort of create a spiritual paradise, but not a paradise on earth. And then allegedly, Moon is the one appointed by God to complete the work and actually perfect the world as it is, so that everyone is living in effectively a, a utopia on earth. Now, of course, Moon passed away two years ago, and there's no sign that utopia is in the offing, but... <laughs> When I joined in 1976, I actually came to believe that this was imminent and that uh, the, the world would soon all be following Reverend Sun Myung Moon and believing in him and, and that paradise would soon be perfected on earth. And thinking back to the conversation we had before, marriage seemed to play a huge part in Sun Myung Moon's doctrine, that through marriage somehow this perfect world was going to come about. Could you explain how that worked in his thinking? He believed, or claimed he believed, because we don't know for sure, that the original fall of man, in the Bible it's uh, Adam and Eve eating the apple, but he said that's a symbolic action, and actually what really happened was that the archangel Lucifer seduced Eve, and then Eve was confused by her choice, which was against God, so she seduced Adam, and they were immature, so they should not have had the relationship, and therefore all throughout human history we have inherited effectively satanic lineage. And Moon says, I can cleanse you of the satanic lineage. And he says that he, do, he does it by, first he had to get married himself, and then he had to, well, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but he, he has this holy wine that you're supposed to take in a special ceremony just before you yourself are married. And the holy wine allegedly cleanses your blood of the, of the original sin, and therefore your descendants will be cleansed of original sin. And supposedly then you will be on track to be a perfected individual and therefore all of society will become perfect. Now, I'm not even sure if I've answered your question because I'm kind of getting into the details here. Yeah, well, I suppose what I was... Um what I'm thinking now is, you know, some Moon was saying that he was going to complete what Jesus didn't manage to do. And going back to the conversation we had before, is it right that he, at least the implications of what he believed was that Jesus himself should have married and, and therefore done lots of blessings of marriages and brought about this perfect world through these perfect marriages, but that didn't happen. So Sung Moon had to come along and complete what Jesus failed to do. Exactly, yes. Supposedly, it was supposed to work out that in Jesus' day, he would have done what Moon ended up doing, and the Roman Empire was supposed to all, effectively all convert to uh, Jesus' teachings, and then he would start marrying people, and he would himself be married, and that's what Moon claims anyway. Okay. Well, as I said before, to get into the detail of that, the real thing to do is to go and listen to the previous interview, because we do go into that in quite some depth. But that gives us uh, just a reminder of the kind of thing that uh, some young moon was teaching, and I presume the Unification Church still believes. But what I need to ask you next in setting up this conversation, really, is how did you get involved in such an organization in the first place? Well, it certainly wasn't something I had planned. I was traveling. This is 1976. I had graduated from the University of British Columbia, and my next stop was probably, originally I planned to go to northern Canada and to try to write an, a novel. Uh, but because I was injured while working on a construction site job in Edmonton, Alberta, I said, well, I'm going to take a time off. And, and I thought I might travel to California instead. And while I was down in California, I met the Unification Church in San Francisco. And they were notorious during that era for recruiting travelers. Many travelers from all over the world would get pulled into the Unification Church in exactly that way. And also from all over the United States, of course. If they saw a person with a backpack or something like that saying they're a traveler, then they would target those people because they were uh -huh. considered good choices because they would be more likely to agree to, oh, yes, I'll go up to your farm for a few days 
stick around a little longer and so on. And I did fit the bill there. No commitments and plenty of time. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, so you were persuaded to go and visit them and you spent, was it quite a bit of time with them? Well, yes. Originally, it was to be a two-day thing. And then when the two days were up, they said, oh, you must stay for the weekend. We do lots of fun things and you'll get lectures delivered by these really great lecturers and you'll then you'll understand better. The thing about it was that you're going up to this farm and not realizing that they're about to put you on a regime of hearing a whole series of lectures and then group activities all very carefully managed so that you're really never alone and you're always with the group and you're always sort of being urged and nudged to not only stay with the group but to sort of go along with it and agree with it. And it's very hard not to do it because you don't want to be obnoxious and rude by by refusing to do everything so you you go along with it and and then they say after the the weekend was up they say oh but you must stay for the full week you haven't heard the real message yet we've got a, a really great lectures coming and they sort of prevail upon you to stay even longer and so it continued that way for a full four weeks well, i remained at their farm in uh, northern california this is 1976 by that time, I was persuaded to stay and be a part of the group. And even then, I didn't fully understand what group I was joining. I still sort of thought of it as the Creative Community Project, which is how they called themselves. And only really when I got down to the city was I understanding, okay, this is actually the Unification Church. <laughs> and so it, they, ah. they gradually revealed their doctrine. They gradually told me more about Reverend Moon, which they did not talk about at all initially. Yes, and that seems to be characteristic of them, does it not? Because when I was at university back in the 1980s, I remember that there was a group, I think they might have been at Imperial College or University College London, one or the other, they were sort of floating around and I think they were calling themselves an, an acronym, was it C-A-R-P or something like that? Oh yes. But not, not letting on that they were Moonies and somebody said to me, oh oh yeah, watch out, they're actually Moonies. <laughs> yes. What, what did that stand for, by the way? Collegiate Association for the Research of Principles. Very vague, very uh, unrevealing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I guess uh, a question that might be in a lot of people's minds is why you were persuaded to go along and why you actually did join up. You know, you weren't quite sure what was being revealed. And, uh, you know, you said that you felt that you wanted to go along. You didn't want to be obnoxious. But why were you persuaded to go along? And this isn't as easy to answer as one might think. And um, so what we need to do is to look at the first part of your book called Lost in the Metro. And here you explore your creative writing from the days prior to your involvement with the Moonies. I very much admire the way in which you share with the reader many of your very deepest concerns from that time. So if I may, could I ask you to characterize those days prior to your involvement in this organization in terms of the kind of emotions and thoughts that you were experiencing that were motivating your creativity at that time? What kind of emotions and thoughts were you experiencing? I'd say the first and most important thing on my mind was that I, I was socially inhibited. I couldn't build relationships, especially I desired, I was a young man, I desired a relationship with a woman, but I couldn't seem to make it happen. I felt emotionally overwhelmed when I even tried to do it. And finally, I just felt that no matter what I tried, I could not break through that. And so this was one of the dominant thoughts in my mind was this feeling of, of loneliness and alienation. And I began to think, well, maybe this is more general than just myself. Maybe this is a symptom of my society. I even developed this theory of what I called the primal alienation of Western man, where we're all alienated from ourselves and so on. So I was thinking along those lines. And I was also at the same time doing a personal inquiry about, well, what is the ultimate meaning of life? To me, if I could find what life was really truly about, then I could say, okay, at least I know that and, and I can feel where, where I fit into things. And then the alienation wouldn't weigh me down so much. But to make an effort to figure out what is life about, I, I felt like I couldn't just rely on authority. I couldn't just say, oh, read the Bible or read the Quran or any other authoritative text. And I didn't feel I could just rely on what others are telling me. It had to somehow be something I could say, I know this is true and it fits. So 
after working on it for a while, I just came to the conclusion, you can't figure it out. It's impossible. It's all a gamble is how I used to put it. And so a lot of my writing was about this idea that it's just a gamble and no matter what you, things you choose, you, you just don't know if it's going to be the right thing or the wrong thing. And then I'd say that one other theme that was on my mind quite a bit, I became quite concerned about pollution. And so I wrote about the environment and uh, about alienation from nature and, and trying to find a, a connection back with nature. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, I wanted to ask you about the very first piece of creative writing that you put in the book. It's obviously very important for you because you put it there in that very prominent place. And this is Lonely Man's Song from 1974, a poem. And you have those themes there of this social anxiety and this existential alienation, both very clearly in that poem. I'm just wondering if you could obviously not read it all the way through, but I'm wondering if you could just talk us through the basic things that happen in that poem so we can get an idea of how you express those themes in your creative writing at that moment. Yes, that poem I wrote while I was living alone in an apartment in Montreal. Now, I'm from Western Canada, and so even just moving to Montreal was a big shift for me. It's a bilingual city and quite different from Calgary, where I grew up. But I moved to Montreal, in a sense, to find myself. I was 20 years old, and I'd done two years of university in Calgary, and I was, wasn't sure I wanted to continue with university, so I went away for a year. And while I was in Montreal, I was living by myself and feeling this alienation, and I decided to create a poem that would express it. And so the poem is broken into segments where I try different forms. Some are rhyming, some are not. Some have the meter and some do not. I've just run through it quickly. The first section sort of sets the scene. It describes a, a man in a restaurant on a rather dull day in February or something like that, looking out at the street and feeling rather depressed. And then the second section goes into the man's thoughts, and he even says to himself, why do I live? He wrestles with that. And then in the third section, which is more of a free verse, someone enters the restaurant. It's a young woman that he finds attractive, and she's with a companion, and they're laughing and having a good time. And he feels acutely pained because he wants so much to be able to do what they're doing. He would like to have a companion like that young woman, but he just feels, I can't. I don't know how to do it. This then leads to a, another section where he sort of goes into despair. And it's written with, you know, expressing the intense despair, even suicidal feelings. And you have those words sort of pasted across the page with great big gaps, don't you? As if they're just thoughts that are painfully okay. coming to you moment by moment. And then it sort of reverts to a more stylized format for the final section where the man decides, all right, I'm just going to go now. And, and he quietly leaves the restaurant. And the last line, I if I remember, is something like, and choking on life and defeat of his making. So the man in the poem, of course, represents me in many ways. And I was acknowledging that in some ways I was creating my own despair, but I didn't quite know how to get out of it. And you say in the book that these kinds of things that you were feeling at the time made you prone, made you a target for this kind of group. I mean, you say on page 19, and you're very definite about it, let me quote from you, you say, my strong feelings of social anxiety and alienation were probably my main point of vulnerability with regard to being recruited by an extreme religion, because I desired so much to belong and to feel that I deserved to be a part of the human family. I was an obvious target for an organization that would greet me with elaborate shows of warmth and flattery. But at another point, you say that it was as much to do, or you imply that it was as much to do with the circumstances that you were in as it was to do with your character at that moment. And um, I bring this up because I'm reminded here of something that Steve Hassan says. He refers to the fundamental attribution error. And I want to ask you about this. Now, of course, Steve Hassan, who was himself quite a prominent Mooney, I believe, for a time, and who is now perhaps one of the most famous psychological counselors helping people to get free from dangerous new religious movements, extreme religions, and whose writing, you say, was very helpful for you as well, of course. Anyway, Steve Hassan says that this fundamental attribution error is committed by many of us when we think things like, oh, it's people get involved in these kinds of groups because they're weak or they, they get involved involved because uh, they're unintelligent or gullible, weak-minded, this sort of thing. 
rather than realizing that actually circumstances, just the circumstances of life, very often also play a very significant role in this kind of happening where people get involved. People are situationally vulnerable, not just vulnerable in terms of personality. So a couple of questions here. Do you think Steve Hassan's right about that? And was that true for you, that it's not just about how you were at the time personally, but also circumstantially? Yes, even though I was trying to point out that that there's some indications of a vulnerability to a cult, one should not conclude from this that all people who join cults are therefore people depressed or socially isolated. By no means, you get all kinds of people joining these groups, and certainly in the Unification Church, I met all kinds of people. Although that created a possible way that they could get to me, probably as as important a factor as anything was just that when they approached me, I was in a situation where I did not have to go back home for any reason. I was free for, to choose to stay with them for a while, and therefore free to let them manipulate me without my realizing they were doing so. Had I had some commitment that would have taken me absolutely back to Calgary after a week, I probably would have gone back home and sort of, it would have been like a, a dream that I forgot, you know, a fading dream in my mind, the whole experience. So I think that Stephen Hassan is basically right, that people of all types can be drawn into these groups. And it may be the most significant factor would be Are they in a situation where they are free to be manipulated for long enough that the group can sort of get its uh, mental hooks into them, if you like? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm thinking back to when I was at university. I think this would be my first year at university, maybe my second year, actually. And uh, certainly during the second year, I didn't have a very pleasant time, I have to say. You know, most people go through difficult periods in their life, and that just happened to be one for me. And while I was in London, I was actually approached by a Mooney who asked me, do you want to come to a film showing, I think it was, and a meal? And I had something to do or something that was going on in the evening. And I just said, oh, no, no, I'm not interested. Thanks. You know, I've got got something to do. I can't remember the exact details about it. But now that you say that, I just wonder, had I not had that, (laughs) the commitment that was there, might I just have gone along and perhaps, you know, history would have been different. I don't know. It's certainly possible, I would say, yes. I mean, there were all kinds of other things that would have to line up, but... Yes, it might have happened. Right, okay. I mean, what you say reminds me of one of the things that Steve Hassan said in a video that I saw recently where he he said, you know, if you're tempted to think things like, I'm too smart, I'm not a follower, I'm not a joiner, I'm a challenger of authority, that kind of thing would never happen to me. You know, he sort of stared at the audience and said, you know, if you think that way, then you are actually subject to this fundamental attribution error because you think that kind of thing couldn't happen to you. And it could. <laughs> yes. So uh, when I saw that, you know, the, as I said to you before the interview, the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. <laughs> no, I would agree with that generally. I definitely met all kinds of people in the Unification Church. And if people believe that it's just very vulnerable people or people of a certain type that join, well, that's not what I experienced. Now, I want to ask you about your creative work between 1974 and 1976, because In this period, you seem to be very much centered in this conviction that you had that it was useless to try and find out the ultimate meaning of life. Now, this is a very difficult question for you to answer, I do realize, but to what extent would you say that that conviction was the result of your emotional state at the time? And to what extent would you say it was the result of philosophical and theological inquiry? And I ask this because I noticed this theme is present in your poem, Interview. Yes, I would say that I made an honest effort to try to think through how I could know what the meaning of life is and what authorities I could rely upon absolutely. So that's all philosophical inquiry. But I would say that the emotional part is why did it matter so much to me? Because I know there are other people who may not know what life is all about, but they don't mind Life is life. It's fun. It's this and that. And and they could basically shrug their shoulders and say, so we don't know what it's about. Let's just do it. But for me, it mattered a lot that I know what life is about because I was feeling so alienated, so lonely. So therefore, if I knew what life was about, it would make me feel like, okay, even if I feel this way, at least I know where I fit in. And therefore, I can take consolation in that. 
Mm. And so, therefore, it was very um, emotionally unsettling for me to come to the conclusion that you can't know what life is about. Okay, I take what you say there, but what interests me is why you actually did reach that conclusion at that time, because you were obviously relatively young at the time. And I'm just trying to, you know, to put it in kind of pictorial terms, you know, was it the case that you had there on your desk 25 of the weightiest uh, theological and philosophical tomes and you'd read them all the way through and you'd reach the conclusion, nope, I can't find out the meaning of life? Or was it the case that it was largely to do with the the way you were feeling at the time. And and I, I ask it because in this poem, Interview 1975, where you are, the idea is that you're having a conversation with God here. At a certain point in the poem, and I will read it, um, it is a single chord in a forgotten sonata whose composer, now dead, wrote a thousand more like it, but in other keys, since he never could know that a touch on that chord stirs a soft, tingling shiver as a lover's quick touch thrills the spine. So I noticed in there, you had that theme there of romantic love, which you were missing at the time, and I just wondered to what extent that was actually fueling this conclusion ah, there's no point in life, ah, there's no meaning to life, rather than it being at the end point of a long philosophical inquiry. Well, you're right that I didn't have a whole lot of books on my uh, desk, and I, I didn't read philosophers, I didn't read Hume or Heidegger, I didn't read uh, theologians. I uh, was just trying to figure it out on my own, and... Um, I, I, you may well have hit on it that somehow it would drive that conclusion. All I know is that I felt, okay, I, I'm going to try to figure it out. Now, maybe if I mention a little bit about my religious background, it might clarify it. I grew yeah. up in a mainline Protestant church in Canada. It's called the United Church of Canada, and it's a fairly well-meaning, but let's face it, bland organization. And uh, I did not feel deeply inspired by it growing up. And I also was strongly influenced by my older brother, who was what you might call a scientific skeptic, who felt religion was, you know, for people who just don't get the picture. <laughs> and, and because he was such a strong influence on me, I, I often, you know, would take the same view and I would think of religion as foolish and blind, and I would often see it, admittedly, in a rather simplistic way. I should say that right now, I'm a member of the United Methodist Church, and I sing in the choir, so things have changed. But back then, that to me probably represented what religion meant to me, was a lot of well-meaning people saying nice things that just don't have much reality behind them. Probably that affected why I drew that conclusion. Yeah, it's very interesting that you say that because you have that very amusing story from 1986 called A Day with Dashing Dave. Um, of course, you're in the Unification Church, aren't you, at this period, and you play with the idea of your unification theology as being like an old car and the other religions that are on offer out there in the world as being different cars for sale at a used car lot, which is very amusing. I, I, lo I love that piece of writing. And um, you have a go at various religions, including the Methodist denomination, <laughs> which, which I found very funny. And I thought it was spot on in many respects, actually. Can I just read that little bit where Dashing Dave, this is the car lot owner, he says, I have just the thing for you. This baby over here is a real old-fashioned American family sedan. The Methodist, there's lots of room in the back because that's where everybody likes to sit. This beauty is in mint condition. The owner was just a regular guy who only drove it on Sundays. Comes complete with a maintenance manual by John Wesley himself. But you don't have to read it if you don't want to. Most Methodist owners just keep their theologies up any way they like. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was brilliant and uh, it certainly reflects my own experience of the uh, particular Methodist church I was brought up in. Oh, yes, it is ironic isn't it, <laughs> it that is. I wrote that. <laughs> Could we move on to the second part of your book then? So this is uh, the thought crime in the Unification Church section of your book. And I think this is perhaps the most intriguing section because it describes such a change in your creative writing. And in this section, you explore the ways in which your true self or your hidden self, the authentic you, which had been very much suppressed 
by a false self or a pseudo self, a cult created self that the mind control techniques of that organization had brought about, how that true self gradually became freer and freer, largely through the process of your creative writing, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so as we come to explore this theme of the false self, could you help us to explore that by telling us how this kind of split personality functions within these kinds of organizations? How do they bring that about and why do they use it? The main purpose uh, of that is to uh, suppress your tendency to want to leave the group because the group will ask extreme things of you. They'll ask you, in the case of the Unification Church, they did ask me to sell flowers day and night and to run around the streets of Baltimore or other cities, and it was extremely demanding. And uh, why would you do that? And why would you put up with it? So that they, what they want you to get you to do is to shut down the parts of you that would say, I'm going to make up my own choices and I'm going to trust my own judgment. So they get you to distrust yourself and, and that's your original self. And they say you the only way you can be in line with God is you think only about the doctrine and you keep chanting, you keep focusing on the doctrine only and you keep your mind off all those other things. And then you'll then you'll sort of stay on track from their point of view. But that creates a personality type that is sort of very different from the way you were before, suppresses your creativity and many other things. Mm -hmm. well, I think it's important to bring out this, which I got from your book and also from Steve Hassan's writings, that, I mean, a lot of people, I think, will, might have the impression that a cult like this would kind of change your personality. There's truth to that. Nevertheless, perhaps it's not the best way of thinking about it, but it's better to think about it as a splitting of your personality so that you have this old you and you have this new you and the old you is where creativity and freedom reside, but that's heavily suppressed by the new you, which is subordinate to the organization. But that means that your old you, your creative self is still there. It's dormant but it's still there. And you seem to be saying over and over and over in your book that if that door can be opened, a little chink of light can come through so that the creativity can be re-triggered. At that point, there is hope that the old you can be brought back to life again. Have I characterized that correctly? That's, that's basically right. And, and the process won't be instantaneous for most people. And in, in my case, the breakthrough occurred in 1980, but I actually stayed in the church till 1986. During that time, I wrestled with myself a lot, but between 1976 and 1980, I basically kept all those other feelings tamped down, and I and I didn't let myself think too much, and I, I was what you could call a very committed member of the Unification Church, and I was really willing to, when they said that your father needs us to do this great campaign, I was all ready to do work night and day just as he asked to do it. And so it wasn't until I was in a situation, because I was at the seminary, that I began to rediscover that part of myself that would maybe question some of this and doubt whether I needed to work the way they asked and, and doubt whether the work, even if it was necessary, was really effective because it often seemed that they were doing things that were quite ineffective. And I would wonder about that, too. Yeah, now that seems quite ironic, doesn't it, actually, because you'd think that going to the seminary would achieve exactly the opposite, that you would be there even further indoctrinated and find less and less freedom. But and I'm going to ask you about this in a minute. Uh, you, you found it to be quite the opposite, really. Before we leave the suppression of this organization, I wanted to ask you to reflect upon something else that Steve Hassan writes about. And this is the four categories of control that he talks about. And he has an acronym for this, BITE, B-I-T-E. And that stands for control through behavior, information, thoughts and emotions. So I'm just wondering if you could reflect back on those days and give us some examples of perhaps how you were controlled in terms of your behavior, the information you had access to, the thoughts that you were allowed to think, and the emotions that you were allowed to recognize in yourself. I'm thinking now mostly about the first four years I was in the church, where they, they had that all tamped down pretty heavily. As far as behavior, you would uh, be expected to follow the program, the follow the central figures, how they would put it. You would be subject to a, a lot of uh, 
social rejection or whatever if you didn't follow the central figure. So you were always doing whatever the church said. And if they suddenly said, okay, now you have to move to another city, you just did it. And if they said, okay, now we're, we're going to put you on a different mission, meaning they're going to give you a different form of activity to do, you just went along with it. So that, that was the behavior control. At the, in, during that early stage in the church, I did not choose my own path. I did not decide what I was going to do for the church. They said, okay, we need you to do this. Oh, now we need you to do that. Then as far as information is concerned, you were mostly just kept too busy to do things like read newspapers, listen to radios. The only information you'd get about what was going on in the world would be if they decided to tell you something. And usually what they would tell you would be something that heavily fit in with their doctrines and their ideas. So, for example, when I was in the Unification Church, which was a very strongly conservative organization, we were paranoid about communism at that time. And so all world events would be interpreted on the whether it's communist or democratic and whether it's uh, mm -hmm. from God or from Satan is how they would put it. So information, you just were too busy and uh, too preoccupied to draw much information from the outside world. Would they say, well, you shouldn't read that if it was uh, against the Unification Church? Would they actually stop you from reading things? Yes, they would. Well, I mean, you could still do it if you were really determined to, but... They would say that this writer is uh, invaded by Satan or is possessed. Or I had a phobia for a long time about reading the writings of other former members of the Unification Church. So that even after I quit the Unification Church, it wasn't for about six years before I decided to pick up one of these volumes of, of works by somebody who had left the church to see what they had to say. Because in the church, you always regarded those people as lost souls and, and Satan had taken mm. over and you don't want to read that. Mm. You don't want to mm. be caught up in their thinking. Yes, and you do say somewhere in the book that these kinds of feelings that you, you should still go along with what the organization taught was stayed with you and do stay with people who come out of these organizations for perhaps years afterwards. Oh, yes. Yes, it, it can be very persistent. Mm. And it requires that you challenge it, I think, before it starts to break down. And what about the area of thoughts and emotions where you were sort of policing yourself? How did they bring that about? Oh, well, mostly they would induce a kind of a phobia that I, I think in the Unification Church, especially because they had this strong doctrine that you were not to have a relationship with the opposite sex until marriage and only a marriage that Reverend Moon approved and only, you know, according to their timing. And if you were to think thoughts Say you liked a person from the opposite sex. If you were to think too many thoughts about that, that would that would invite Satan to invade you, and you would become off center, and then you might leave, and and then your soul would be lost, and your ancestors would would be lost with you, and so on. So you get this phobia that I better not think these things. I better not dwell on these thoughts at all. Mm -hmm. And similarly for any thoughts of leaving or any thoughts of. Uh, rebelling against authorities in the church. This was Satan and trying to influence you. Later on in the third section where you describe how you were breaking free from all of this and, and writing much more freely, though not completely freely, of course, you reach the conclusion that Reverend Moon deliberately used marriage as a way of controlling people in the organization. Yes, whether he was consciously doing it or unconscious, he knew that this was a way to get people to stay loyal. Okay, I'm going to give you a marriage partner, and uh, oftentimes that marriage partner is someone that you would not have selected for yourself, so therefore you're going to wrestle with it, you're going to struggle with it, and that very fact is going to make you more loyal because you're going to feel like, I have to stay with this person even though I don't want to. And Reverend Moon, uh, it turns out, as I've learned long after I left the church, I learned out what a hip, I learned what a hypocrite Moon is about sex and marriage and how he had multiple marriages and how he may have practiced some sex rituals in the early days of the church and all things that would be have been shocking to me when I was a member. But I'd say that you could not control a person better than just by making them stay in a, a difficult marriage and feeling that I have to do it because that's God's will. 
Let's turn then back to your time at the seminary and how important this was for you. And as I said before, this seems to be the opposite of what one would expect, which you think that while you were at seminary, there you'd be getting the classes and the material and going into more and more depth and becoming more and more indoctrinated. And yet, this seemed to have the opposite effect for you. Can you explain why that seemed to be a major period in your beginning to break free from this group? I guess the biggest thing is the behavior control was less. The information control was less. I was still policing my own thoughts, but at some point that was going to start to to degrade in, in the face of the loss of these other controls. Because at the seminary, you were more free to set your own schedule. Mm-hmm. You were still told, oh, you should do this, this, and this, and they gave us loads of extracurricular activities. So that in my first year at the seminary, I was still just, I would say I was still just running around like a like a fundraiser or selling flowers, doing all the activities they asked me to do, plus going to these classes that they had. But over time, you develop more bonds with the people at the seminary. And say when during the time when I was a fundraiser selling flowers and candy, I would have a very shallow bond with the other people who were going out selling flowers and candy with me. I would know them, I might like them, but two months later, I would be moved to another team and it would be different people. So I would never develop a a deeper connection. But at the seminary, you're there for a whole year with people and you you do develop deeper connections and Mm. your schedule is more open and uh, you're more free to go into the the nearby town and and maybe you could buy a newspaper. You could, if you decide you want information, you you go after it. So it was quite different. And, and I would say that mm. it, it resulted in this transition that I would say took almost two years to complete, where I was started to lift the thought control and, and say to myself, maybe I should, you know, allow myself to feel these feelings, even though I'm not supposed to. Mm-hmm. So all of those four categories that Steve Hassan talks about then were kind of relieved at that moment. There was behavioral control, the information, the thoughts and the emotions. There was less pressure during that time. So you were able to discuss more openly your thoughts and feelings with other people and you you could behave more in the way you wanted to. So this was a very freeing experience for you. Yes, it was. Mm. And during this time, you created a sermon, no doubt one of many, but there's one that you put in your book, one of your first pieces of creative writing from this period, I believe, that you delivered in seminary. I did. And you highlight this as being particularly significant for you. Uh, And this is another one of these things where looking at it, you might think, well, why is this particularly significant? But given everything we've we've said about how you were being suppressed and, and repressing yourself, I can see why this was significant. Could you explain that to us? Yes, that sermon was delivered twice, once in the class and then once before the whole seminary. I was taking a homiletics class. Homiletics is the study of preaching. And I I wrote this sermon out of a strong feeling that was evoked by a a classmate who had approached me well-meaning, but she did not realize how much it was going to affect me. And what she did was simply, she said, Gordon, I see you're troubled. And I actually didn't realize I was troubled at the time. If you want to talk to me about anything and you want to just openly express your feelings, I'm glad to listen. And somehow that honest expression of a wish to just hear someone out hit home in a way that it's even hard even now for me to express. So that I suddenly felt I'd been given something so important that I, I had better hold on to it. And maybe in a way that was the beginning of the change because I was saying to myself, the seminary, the church leaders might not like that I want to talk to this person. They might be uneasy that it's, uh, you know, a young woman and I'm a man and we're not supposed to be in a relationship other than as brother and sister. But it felt too good to let go of it. And so then I wrote a whole sermon based on that one young woman's earnest desire just to hear me out. And I said, we should all do that. We should all be willing to open up and hear each other out and hear each other's deepest feelings. And um, at the time I wrote the sermon, I earnestly thought that this was a sermon entirely in keeping with Unification Church doctrine and practice, and that and it would help the church for everyone to do that. I did not really understand that I was actually inviting people to open up to their true selves and therefore to break out of the church. <laughs> I did not realize it was going to have that effect on me, but that's effectively what did happen. 
That's amazing, isn't it? Looking at it from outside, that is really very subversive. You know, that's the kind of thing that I would hear quite regularly. You know, let's be honest with each other. Let's talk to each other about the concerns that we have. And yet from within inside that organization to say such things was really subversive and revolutionary. Yes, it, it certainly had that effect on me. I mean, the, all yeah. of a sudden, I, I suddenly had something outside of the church, the doctrine and the, the Reverend Moon that I was so attached to that I felt like I had to stay loyal to it. And that was this woman's uh, desire to hear me out and, and my desire to do the same for others. And around this time, you started a diary, which you liken in some ways to Winston Smith's small cream-colored book in uh, George Orwell's 1984, uh, which he uh, buys, and of course, which is tantamount to signing his own death warrant, as you remind us. But instead, you say of filling your diary with down with Father Moon, as, as Winston Smith says, down with Big Brother, you use the diary to try and resolve your personal problems with unificationism and you write quote i continue to believe that moon was the messiah and that it was the church leaders who were misunderstanding me and my true intentions so what fascinated me about this was that in this diary you express your dissatisfaction not at the core of the organization at moon and the divine principle but at everything else that kind of floated around moon that was what was wrong the church structures the leaders and this is something that I've heard a number of times from people involved in these kinds of things, that very often people, as they're coming out of it, will first feel an urge to become a reformer of the extreme religion rather than just leavers. And it seems to me that that's what was going on with your writing here. So can you tell us about that period and you know how your writing shifted to becoming, a, in your own mind, a unificationist reformer? Yes, I suppose it, starting in 1980... Uh, I began, I, I was actually sent away from the seminary. They found that I was becoming too troubled because I was thinking too much about, you know, this idea of let's li listen to each other and hear each other out. And, and I was no longer doing whatever was required to do the work, you know. So they sent me away from the seminary in, in the fall of 1980, where I would have originally stayed on for a third year, but I did not. And during that year, I decided to go to Los Angeles. And, and here again, it was unusual that I was given my own choice, but they basically were not that interested in having me around anyway. So they let me do what I wanted. And I said, I'm going to go to Los Angeles and work with the Unification Church in Los Angeles, and I'm going to pursue primal therapy because I think it might help me. And so I tried to do that for a couple of years. But as I did this, I remain loyal to this idea that we should all hear each other out. So my new way of thinking was, okay, I'm not just going to tell you what the doctrinal view of what you're doing is and, and tell you to, to shut down and, and so on. I'm going to hear you out and listen to what you feel. Mm. I, I stayed loyal to that idea for several years, but I, still, I believed it, that if everyone in the church did that, the church would work more effectively and would get more... Uh, followers and so on. And I was still therefore in a reformer's position rather than a critic's position. Right. Well, let's turn to the third part of the book. This is Recovering My Voice. And perhaps the main obstacle that you begin to overcome during that period was your deep reluctance to acknowledge that you had indeed been brainwashed or subject to mind control, however we might want to call that. And you seem to be very much helped by Again, turning to Steve Hassan, his book on mind control, um, in coming to this realization that this had happened to you. And one of the lines from one of your poems here uh, reads like this. Brainwashed, you say? It wasn't that. But a fear of what I saw as looming chaos, a life I felt was irredeemably spoiled, and a willingness to give it up, even my identity, to spare the doom and bring world peace. So was that at that moment anyway, brainwashed? No, no, no. It wasn't that. But as your realization grew that you had indeed been controlled in these kinds of ways, then you became more and more critical of that organization that had done this to you and done this to other people as well. And you point especially to a story that you wrote and rewrote two more times called The Marriage of the Lamb. And those rewritings show how this realization, of course, was growing within you. So could you explain how this story changed over time and how the actual business of writing it helped you to uh, express this growing awareness? The first story was written in 1992, I think. 
it was just around the time that I began to realize, but I think it was just before I began to realize that I'd been under mind control. And in that version, I have a young woman from England named Peggy who is coming to America to meet her husband. She, she doesn't even really know much about him. She'd met him once before. In that version, she always seeks consolation by turning to the doctrine of the church to submerge the emotions she's feeling. So in the first version of The Marriage of the Lamb, Peggy is haunted by a, a memory of a very terrible thing that had happened to her before she was a member of the Unification Church, and she keeps trying to submerge it by turning to the doctrine. And I imply at the end of the story that Peggy goes through this mass wedding, which I myself was in in 1982 in Madison Square Garden. She goes through the wedding and is somehow totally immersed in the doctrine and therefore freed from the thing that was bothering her. And she, it says, I think, she felt no panic at all, but only a beatific emptiness. That's how the story ends. So I later reworked that story. My character Peggy in the second version has the same terrible backstory, and she has the same desire to submerge it. But this time she does it through an attachment to this person that she's going to be married to, an attachment that the church frowns upon. So in, in the second version of the story, they've developed a kind of a bond of touching each other, which is actually forbidden by the church. And that is how, in a sense, Peggy submerges her bad memories. And that story is in some ways a little bit closer to what I personally experienced. I did have a bond to the woman that I was supposed to marry in that ceremony. And we were not legally married, but we did go through the whole wedding thing. And <laughs> I wore the groom's suit and she wore the bridal costume. And, and I did have a strong emotional attachment to that woman. And some of it was was not exactly what the church would have approved of, although we never went the full extent. Otherwise, we would have left the church. And that attachment to her comes out very clearly in the wine-stained handkerchief that you wrote in 1995. And I'll come back to that uh, in a moment because that moved me particularly, that piece of writing. Anyway, uh, could you tell us about the third version then of The Marriage of the Lamb? So in the third version, which I wrote fairly recently, I decided to change completely the, sort of the premise of the story. I was still intrigued by Peggy and by the mass wedding, but I wanted to, instead of having it be something that was close to what I personally experienced, I decided to write about somebody else that I know who was matched up by Reverend Moon to a person who was grossly unsuitable and who has really had a lot of personal problems. And this person had to endure a terrible marriage as a result. And I wanted to imply that Peggy is about to go into a situation where she's matched up to a man who, who has a lot of troubles and she knows he does, but she feels like she just has to do it because that's what you're supposed to do in the Unification Church. And feeling, well, isn't that the way it's going to be from now on? That's sort of how that story ends. And if we go back to 1995 with that, the wine-stained handkerchief, which I say I find quite moving actually about your experience there with the arranged marriage system and your two moon chosen partners oh, yeah. <laughs> at different times that's where you come to this point within that piece of writing of recognizing that moon had indeed whether consciously or unconsciously definitely distorted marriage for purposes of control um i'll do my best just reading a little of it and then perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about how you felt about this when you were writing it so this is the wine stained handkerchief memoir 1995 the woman I had met less than two nights before, and who was now to be my wife forever, raised the cup of holy wine to her lips and drank. As true father, the reverend Sun Myung Moon, had instructed at the start of the ceremony, Eleanor, which of course is not her real name, Eleanor drank only half the wine in the small glass cup, and then passed it over to me. I lifted the cup of sweet perfumed wine to my lips, tipped it slightly and began to drink. More than fifteen years have passed since that one moment in my life, yet in my mind's eye it remains in eternal suspension, the wine still just touching my lips, the sweet scent of the perfume moon had mingled with the wine still tingling my nostrils. Not only are the sensations present with me, but preserved also is what that moment meant, not what it was supposed to mean, according to moon's teachings, nor even what it has come to mean since, now that my belief in moon has crumbled. But what remains is what my heart told me it meant. 
I recall it as a moment of ineffable holiness, the one instant in my life when I parted the veil concealing the holy of holies and drank in the sweetness of God's purest love. If I could, I would reach back across the unbreachable divide of those fifteen years and knock that cup out of Eleanor's hands. The wine would spill over her dress, leaving a florid stain. Perhaps she would cry out, take one step backwards, and knock the small brass tray holding the cups of holy wine from the hands of the man who carried them. The tray would strike the floor with a clatter, spraying the couple standing before and behind. There would be the sound of cups shattering, followed by an outcry from all of the more than 800 couples assembled on the last day of 1980 to consecrate their engagements. But that, of course, is not what happened. Yes, thank you. I wrote that originally, um, feeling profoundly angry in a way with the church. That was during probably the height of my bitterness and anger toward the church. This was after I had realized that mind control was real, that I had been subjected to it, that in many ways the whole marriage ceremony, the blessing that, as they call it in the Unification Church, capital B blessing, was really just a trick, if you like, a charade to keep members in line and to keep them stuck in their situation. And so I was furious. And when I wrote The Weinstein Handkerchief, that's what I was expressing. But the part you read says, if I could, I would reach back through the unbreachable divide of those 15 years. But at the end, it says, I'm not sure if I would do that. <laughs> it ends on a slightly different note. I end the, the Weinstein handkerchief with these words. Yet when I look back over the last 15 years, I wonder now whether, even if it were possible to do so, I would have the heart to reach back and dash that cup of wine out of Eleanor's hands. I remember, as if it were yesterday, how I felt in that moment and what it meant to me then, standing on the brink of a decade of heartbreak and rage, in a room filled with stolen lives and subverted dreams, I could not have seen Sun Myung Moon for who he was, a man intent on controlling my mind. Instead, I pictured him as the portly, smiling, true father, leaning over the gaping mouth of my mind shaft of loneliness and hauling me to freedom with that single wine-stained handkerchief. So maybe that essay was written at a time when I was transitioning between the theory that, that I was drawn in because of my psychological vulnerability and the theory that I was drawn in primarily by mind control, because in a way, both things happened to me. That essay expresses my emotional vulnerability quite strongly, how much I longed for a relationship and how this relationship that Moon seemed to have offered to me meant a lot to me. And when it fell apart, how devastating that was. And then to realize that, after all, it was really kind of a fraud that Moon had committed to, to get me to be a member and stay a member. And that he didn't have any of the things they claimed for him, such as knowledge of my ancestors and, and my wife's ancestors and all that. I suppose in a way I'm saying, but wait a minute, it still meant all that to me and, and that still means something. <laughs> Would you say that you have since then... So that's almost 20 years ago. Have you since then come to the point where you wouldn't even say that anymore? I don't think I would be as intense in my anger. Mm. I was very angry with the church for a long time. Of course, the, the biggest thing that has happened to change all that, I finally did find a partner, a life partner. I finally found someone to love and life is no longer so alienating so mm. i feel able to let go of some of that anger and interestingly that brings us back to a subject that we were exploring right at the beginning as to how what effect your emotional state in those early days was having upon your quest for meaning in life i mean and you've said since we began the conversation that now you are a member of a methodist church you're singing in the choir and i mean i'm just wondering whether has your newly found emotional stability in this area actually had any effect on your quest for meaning in life? Yes, I would say simply I, I joined the church with a, a nearby church and it was a, seemed a nice enough place. But I went there because I, I was feeling that a lot of challenges and uh, 
I'll just say very briefly that my wife's former husband has created a lot of problems. And so uh, facing those challenges, I needed some support and I found it in the church. And as I did so, and I went there and I began to develop a new appreciation for Christian theology and I began to uh, internalize it and no longer see it in the simplistic way I used to see it. Mm. It became suddenly quite meaningful to me. Well, it brings me really to ask you, the last time that we had a conversation, because I didn't know you so well, I wanted to ask you a question on faith issues, but I didn't feel that I could at the time because I felt uh, perhaps this should come from you rather than me trying to prompt it. But now having read your book, and you're so open in the book, I feel happier to ask you now. Um, would you say that you do now have a faith in God? And I'm asking this because I'm just wondering, you know, what the fallout is of your experience with uh, Reverend Moon, you know, and there's a possibility that could have poisoned things for you forever. But do you now have a faith in God? Yes, I do. I uh... hmm. As I mentioned earlier, I attend a, a local Methodist church, and it's really quite similar to the churches I grew up with. And And back then, I found them to be dull and uh, did not attract me. And, and now I find them very helpful. I find going to this church and the people at the church very helpful. And uh, it is also true that being in the Unification Church or any extreme group like that might cause a person to say, I don't want to be part of any church I think what happens is that you go through, you have to go through a period of time where you just don't know what to believe. And I, I went through that for quite a while. And then I just happened to be in a circumstance where things were challenging for me personally. And I decided maybe these people can help. Maybe if I go there, I'll find some uh, consolation, some support. And I did find that. As a result of that, of course, then I'm starting to say, well, then I'm going to read more about Christianity. I'm going to think more deeply about um, the theological issues of Christianity, and therefore I would say that I'm becoming more in involved mm -hmm, with it. Mm -hmm. Would you say that through those years, you always retained some belief in God? I mean, obviously, while you were in the Unification Church, it was such a distorted theology that it was looking at God through the bottom of a wine bottle sort of thing, very distorted. But nevertheless, would you say that you retained a faith through those years and even as you were coming out? Or was there a point where you did have that break, where you rejected, sort of, no, no, I can't have anything to do with God at all, and then came back again? How, how was it for you, that process? Oh, I would not say that I completely broke all belief in God. I didn't go to an atheist mm. position. I went to an agnostic position after the church. And that meant that it was still possible for me sometimes to pray and to reflect. But I didn't know where to turn to get further information on on what to pray about and, mm. and so on. I want to draw the conversation to a close now by asking you to gather the strands of the conversation together and one of those main strands i think really is the importance of creativity for somebody who's involved in that kind of situation to use creativity to reawaken their repressed self so could you speak about the importance of that creativity uh, both for somebody who might be in that situation and for perhaps people who have a family member who is involved in such a, an organization I think that creativity can be subversive to groups like that because in order to be truly creative, you need independence. You need to think for yourself, how am I going to create this artwork? Now, of course, you can create art that is in keeping with a particular theological viewpoint or whatever. But I, I often think that some of these extreme groups suppress the best in creativity in, in the members because they're not really interested in that. They just want the members to be loyal and faithful and to do as much work as possible for the central organization. For four years in the Unification Church, from 1976 to 1980, I basically wrote no creative works at all. I was too busy. The church said that I should wait. I should not... Uh, spend my time on that right now, that God would would invite me to do that later when the kingdom of heaven on earth had arrived. But meanwhile, I should just work for the church. And so if you can get a person who's in a group like that to commit to really expressing themselves, this will work against their, you know, involvement in, in the cult, because that expression will, will draw them out. 
if you are a former member of a group like that, one of the best things you can do is write about your experience, at least a, um, a short memoir or something. Write down what happened and, and what you think about it, because then that helps you to put it all together. So the real the real danger then is if it comes from your real creative self, that really is the problem for them. Yes, that's right. And that could come not just from creative writing. Presumably that could come from visual arts or from music. If it's coming deep within you, that would be a problem for such a cult. Yes, I, th- I think it has to do with where's your fundamental loyalty? Is your fundamental loyalty to the group or is your fundamental loyalty to the expression, expressing yourself and getting that expression just right? If your fundamental loyalty is to that creative expression, that means you're willing to risk being against the group and having the group ostracize you or whatever. And that, that in turn leads to uh, being able to escape the group. Yeah, it's a very important message. And it seems very much to connect with the kind of thing, going back to Steve Hassan again, where he talks about um, his new approach to things, which he calls a strategic interaction approach. I mean, in past years, apparently, he was involved in deprogramming, which was much more forceful. But these days, he has this kind of voluntary approach where you know, members of somebody's family and friends are given gentle techniques in order to approach such a person who's involved in a group like this. And these would be just techniques of trying to empower that person to open up to their true selves and allowing them to ask questions and, uh, and, and think in a, a freer way. That seems to connect with the kind of thing that you're saying here. You know, creativity frees, just as the permission to ask questions frees. That's right, yes. When my creativity was given back to me, ironically, at the same time, a lot of the emotions that originally drove it, including that feeling of alienation, also returned. That was me, I guess, rediscovering my true self and uh, shaking off the pseudo-self that the cult had imposed on me. Well, Gordon, I do thank you very much for coming on the program for this second time. And I thank you also for sending me your book, which, I, as I said before, I did very much enjoy, full of insights. So I do recommend uh, if anybody's interested in this particular area of uh, study or indeed in creative writing itself to get a copy of this book. I think you'll find it very enjoyable, as I did. And I thank you very much indeed for coming on. Could you just before we end, tell people where they can get a copy of this book? Yes, Cult Fiction by K. Gordon Newfeld is available from the website newfeldbooks.com, N-E-U-F-E-L-D-B-O-O-K-S.com. It's also available from Amazon and uh, many other of these book-selling websites. Great. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, if they've got a particular question, is there any way they can get in touch with you easily? Yes, there's a web page right on newfeldbooks.com. It says, contact the author, and you can supply your email and send a message and submit it, and it will get to me, and I will, I will answer you. I'm definitely interested in talking to people who are former members of groups. I would like to talk to academic people who are maybe interested in the idea of creativity and uh, cults, and I would be really interested in talking to anyone who is intrigued by the subject matter of my book. Marvellous. Well, as I said, thank you ever so much for coming on. It's been great to speak to you again. I really did enjoy the book, and it's uh, great speaking to you. Thanks very much, Gordon, for coming on. All right. Take care, Julian. And you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.